I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, Eye on Iowa. Republican presidential hopefuls make their case to voters in the Hawkeye State. What the candidate said about abortion and how the current president is responding. Closing arguments. After objections from some lawmakers, a government shutdown is a possibility once again. We're on Capitol Hill. Override in Ohio. New developments in the governor's veto of a bill banning gender surgeries for minors. And a tall order. The Vatican unveils plans for renovations to an iconic part of St. Peter's Basilica. These stories add more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, a hot topic on the campaign trail right now, abortion. Just days before the Iowa caucuses, all the top Republican candidates are talking about the issue, and President Joe Biden is ripping on their pro-life stance. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, good evening to you. Tonight, President Joe Biden did not have any on-camera events on his public schedule today, but he is weighing in on abortion using social media. His position, of course, is completely different than the Republican frontrunner and all the other GOP presidential hopefuls. Former President Donald Trump speaks about abortion at a Fox News town hall. The Biden campaign was quick to share it, posting a clip on X. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it. And I'm proud to have done it. President Joe Biden retweeted the video, writing, just like he said, he did it. President Biden criticizes Trump for his pro-life position. Biden's campaign is working with groups like Planned Parenthood and Emily's List to, quote, call out the dire threat that these mega Republicans pose to Americans' freedom to access abortion. Even Republicans who stand for life approach abortion differently. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis debated the issue last night on CNN. These fellas don't know how to talk about abortion. I have said over and over again, the Democrats put fear in women on abortion and Republicans have used judgment. This is too personal of an issue to put fear or judgment. But when she says things like pro-lifers need to stop talking about uh, throwing women in jail, that's a trope. No one I've ever met thinks that that's something that's appropriate. Uh, these women are in vulnerable situations. Chris Christie dropped out of the race after failing to make the debate stage. But he continues to rip on both Biden and Trump. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. And tonight, Tracy, former President Trump, is also making headlines for another reason, this time in New York City. Yeah, and what are you learning about that court appearance today, Owen? Well, Tracy, the former president attended closing arguments in his civil fraud trial in New York City. And afterward, at a news conference, he called the case politically motivated, labeled the attorney general there corrupt, adding she suffers from, quote, serious Trump derangement syndrome. Take a listen. And so it's all it's all a conspiracy to try and get Biden, who can't put two sentences together, trying to get him into office. So I just want to let you know that uh, we have our best poll numbers, we have the best everything despite this, and maybe because of this. Now, Trump did give a courtroom speech, but made those remarks you just heard at a lower Manhattan office building he owns and could lose control of 
as a result of the trial. And Trump and the other GOP presidential candidates face a very tough test this coming Monday. That's when Iowa, the Hawkeye state, holds its caucuses, kicking off the 2024 election season. Tracy? All right. Correspondent Owen Jensen reporting tonight from the White House. Thank you, Owen. And joining us now for a deeper dive into the Haley-DeSantis debate is Mene Ukaruba, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Mene, great to have you back on. Appreciate it. So one thing uh, that really stood out about the debate, at least to me, was, was all that mudslinging between the candidates. What was your impression, and how do you think that came across to the viewers? Was it a good debate strategy? Well, it was really disappointing showing for any of the many voters who tuned in hoping to finally see DeSantis and Haley square off one-on-one, -on -one, hopefully make some attacks against Donald Trump, who they're both vying to be the alternative to, and also some substantive disagreements with each other. But really what we mostly saw uh, was them slinging mud, as you said, at each other. You had DeSantis calling into question Haley's record on taxes with some unfair attacks uh, Haley returning the critique with some of DeSantis's approach to offshore drilling in the beginning of his governorship, but very little that would indicate what either candidate would do either as the Republican nominee or eventually as president of the United States. Yeah, so very and yeah, and although it seemed like there wasn't really much substance there, I mean, was there anything that really stood out to you in way of issues that either one of the candidates seemed to deliver a, a clear and strong message to voters? Well, the two candidates do have very clear distinctions on a couple of important issues. One of them is the war in Ukraine. Haley is very much in favor of supporting that effort and thinks it's important to the national defense. And so she mentioned that the U.S. ought to double down on that support, whereas DeSantis took her to task for that, saying that we've already given too much and arguing that the cause is not particularly important to American defense. Another one is entitlements. Uh, Haley has said that as president, she would be willing to raise the retirement age uh, for people who are currently very young, which is a controversial opinion, whereas DeSantis says that uh, the life expectancy in the country is going down. We can't stand to raise the retirement age higher than it actually is, of course, that would put the United States in a very difficult fiscal situation. So those are a couple of the distinctions that voters could look for between the two candidates. Yeah, and both the candidates uh, challenged Donald Trump's record last night and repeatedly said that he should be on the debate stage. Do you think they're right, or do you think, does it even matter for Trump at this point, since he's so far ahead of the polls? Well, I definitely do think that forcing Trump to answer some of these critiques of his record as president or his actions in the wake of his presidency, particularly on the election fraud claims, uh, would potentially weaken his position with a lot of voters who don't pay close attention. But as a pure strategy for him, it makes sense to stay above the fray because he has such a strong base of support and that doesn't seem to be collapsing. And Manny, I want to talk now uh, about former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, as you know, who dropped out of the race last night. How does that impact things now, if at all? Well, it seems like it could provide a big boost to Nikki Haley, who is running uh, still distant but close-ish second to Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Um, Chris Christie had a pretty big base of support in New Hampshire as well, and most of those voters probably are not inclined to vote for Donald Trump and will go to Haley's camp now that Christie is out. And so the question now is whether she can continue to close that gap and potentially overcome Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Christie dropping out just made that a lot more likely. Well, Mene, always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Tracy. Well, the drum is beating louder for a partial government shutdown to take place at the end of next week, next Friday at midnight to be exact. Some Republican lawmakers now say they are willing to shut down the government if Democrats don't meet their demands on spending cuts 
and border security. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales reports for us. Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. Yes, we've seen this before with former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. More than a dozen House conservatives are threatening to block bills from getting votes on the floor, essentially bringing the House business to a halt. But this time they have the support of some Senate Republicans. Bottom line, they're angry at Speaker Mike Johnson's funding deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Could this happen again? Well, not just yet, but conservative House Republicans tell me cut the spending and secure the border or else. What I want the Republican conference to do is stand up and fight. Actually do what we said we would do. And that's what I want to see out of this. And so look, everything should be on the table today. We took down a rule uh, saying, look guys, let's sit down, do our job, spend at the level we're supposed to. The people I represent, they want us to cut spending, secure the border. No more uh, illegals crossing the border. Put that as a prerequisite to any funding. Why fund a government that's working against the people of this country? And we've got a national security threat with the 8, 10, however many million people that are in this country. It's time to stop. That's the hill to die on. And now several Republican senators have also demanded action. This administration could secure the border. So the only way we can get this administration to do their job is to hold up whatever we can, okay, whether it's Ukraine funding, whatever it is they want, and say, we, you don't get that funding unless we get a secure border. Democrats say Republicans are not leading and need to get their act together. This is where, you know, we need Republicans to get on the same page. I mean, Speaker Johnson has said uh, he no more CRs uh, is what he publicly declared. You have... Uh, Senator Thune and, and Senator McConnell saying that they do want a CR. House Speaker Mike Johnson remains optimistic he can get spending bills passed before next Friday's possible shutdown. We're pushing everybody hard. I mean, they're working overtime um, and, and, and dutifully and valiantly, and I'm very optimistic we can get it done. House Republicans tell me that they could slow down and not let any bills go through until border changes take place and the border is secure. So, could Speaker Mike Johnson be replaced while well, Republican lawmakers are simply telling me tonight that they have to wait and see what moves he makes in the coming days before putting that issue on the table? At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Well, the United Nations top court heard arguments in an unprecedented case. Today, South Africa laid out its arguments accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers, and television screens, the first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Gaza represents nothing short of a moral failure. On the first day of the hearing at the International Court of Justice, South Africa argued that Israel's air and ground assaults were intended to bring about the destruction of the Palestinian population. Israel has strongly denied the accusation, calling it baseless, and will present its defense tomorrow. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including pushing back an update on a hotly debated gender identity bill in Ohio. And we discussed the recent testimony of Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci on Capitol Hill.
House of Representatives has overridden the governor's veto of a ban on gender surgeries for minors. The measure also restricts biological boys from playing on women's and girls' sports teams. The proposal now goes to the state Senate for a vote later this month. While COVID-19 is no longer considered a global health emergency, the director of the World Health Organization is reporting some startling numbers. In the month of December, there were almost 10,000 COVID deaths. Hospitalizations were up 42 percent since November, and during the same time period, admissions to the ICU were up 62 percent. The trends are based on information reported to the WHO from fewer than 50 countries, leading researchers to believe that this situation could be worse. Well, this report comes on the heels of two days of testimony by former chief White House medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in front of a COVID select subcommittee. He faced questions about the COVID-19 pandemic and offered his thoughts on preparing for potential outbreaks. And for more on Dr. Fauci's testimony, let's bring in Dr. Aaron Cariotti of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Good to be with you. Uh, Dr. Fauci's testimony it was behind closed doors, but Chairman Brad Wenstrup issued a statement with some of the takeaways from the testimony. What stood out the most to you? So the first thing that stands out is that Dr. Fauci seems to have a kind of situa situationally induced amnesia, especially when he's under oath. So Fauci claimed that he did not recall pertinent things that he had done, decisions that he had made, the scientific just justification for policies that he supported. He said he didn't recall over 100 times during that uh, testimony. And the testimony transcript has actually been made available publicly now. And it turns out he did the same thing about a year ago in the first time that he was having to testify under oath was a case that I'm involved in as a plaintiff, the Missouri v. Biden case that's currently before the Supreme Court, challenging government censorship. And we know that the NIH and Fauci and director of the NIH, uh, Dr. Collins, were involved in censoring disfavored opinion or people who, who criticized our government's uh, COVID policies. And during that deposition, he said that he didn't recall 179 times when asked uh, very similar questions. So I suppose this week's testimony represents an improvement. He went from 179 to only 100 I don't recalls or I don't remembers. Uh, but the fact is he's trying to dodge and evade uh, giving reasons for his previous uh, leadership decisions and for his previous policies and the things that he said publicly the things that he put in emails and, and are now part of the public record or have been placed in the public record because of um, subpoena or discovery in cases like Missouri v. Biden or in his congressional testimony. So what we have here is a leader who's really uh, being evasive and refusing to stand up and answer questions about decisions that he made that obviously impacted millions of lives here in the United States and even influenced COVID policies abroad when many other nations were looking to the U.S. for guidance. Yeah, and one of the key takeaways um, from day two of his testimony, this is according to Wenstrup's press release, was that Dr. Fauci did indeed advise universities to impose vaccine mandates on their students. I know you were at UC Irvine at the time and you were fired because you didn't comply with the school's mandate. That said, That's right. um, how effective do you think those mandates were? Or did they do more harm than they did good? Yeah. Well, this is not a matter of opinion now. This is a matter of the scientific evidence, which shows that vaccine mandates and places that instituted vaccine mandates did not have overall better COVID outcomes in terms of morbidity and mortality. And what they did have instead 
was downstream harms in terms of people losing their jobs and economic stress and loss of employment has long been known to be a major risk factor for all kinds of negative health outcomes. So the vaccine mandates did not produce any positive health, health, health outcomes, but they have produced documented negative health outcomes and negative social outcomes as well in terms of the um, difficulty with uh, among many in the population now in terms of trusting the public health authorities. And so we have a situation now in which we've had an enormously damaging policy. And instead of recognizing the damage that was done, taking responsibility for that, reassuring the public that that uh, type of policy is not going to be instituted again in the future, we have those responsible for those policies evading responsibility and, it's, and evading answering questions and evading explaining themselves, period. Uh, this is not a sign of sound and healthy leadership. Dr. Cariotti, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Tall Order, a look at restoration plans for part of St. Peter's Basilica. A judge in Colorado is considering a case brought by families who send their children to Catholic schools. In question is Colorado's program that provides preschoolers with 15 hours of free education per week at private or public school of their parents' choice. The so-called universal program excludes Catholic schools. This means more than 1,500 children in three dozen Catholic preschools are not eligible. Opponents say that this is a violation of religious liberty. But we turn now to Nick Reeves, attorney with Beckett Law, that filed the lawsuit to include Catholic schools in the preschool funding program. Nick, great to be with you today. So tell us more about this program and how is Colorado helping parents of preschool children? And is this sort of program, is it found in other states? Yeah, Tracy, just last year, Colorado created a brand new program that allows all different kinds of schools to participate, public, private, even religious schools. They have over 2,000 schools in the program, but they've put requirements on the program that keep Catholic schools out. So if a family, like plaintiffs in this case, Lisa and Dan Sheely, want to or feel obligated to send their kids to a Catholic school, they have to both pay for the pro program and their taxes and pay out of pocket to send their kids to a Catholic school. So Nick, what did the officials in Colorado, I mean, what did they say about why Catholic schools are excluded from this plan? Well, it's a little bit unclear what their actual interest is. They've repeatedly said that these are great schools. There's never been a problem with the schools in this case. Um, these schools provide a quality education. What they've said is, even though there's actually no problem, you just have to agree. You have to sign our contract, which contains provisions that go against Catholic Church teaching. And that's really the issue in the case. Yeah. Are there other schools that maybe aren't Catholic that are kind of excluded from this? Yes, there's actually a Christian school, Darren Patterson Christian Academy, that's already sued the state, and they've already gotten an injunction against the state telling the state they have to be able to participate. So we're just asking for the same thing that other school has already received. We have about a minute left or so, but um, quickly tell us, how are church leaders in Denver, how are they responding to all this, and where does the case stand right now? Yeah, we were just in court last week. Um, we had uh, clients and the state both in court talking to the judge, explaining why this is an important issue and why we should win. Um, I think we're, we're remaining optimistic that we'll get a, get a good outcome here. I think the fact that 
the judge hauled the state into court and made them try to justify their exclusion of Catholic schools really helped us in this case. Lauren Lieber right there. Nick, great to be with you today, and thank you for filling us in. Thank you. Well, the new president of Argentina has issued an invitation to Pope Francis. President Javier Mele has officially invited the Holy Father to visit the country. Pope Francis is from Argentina, but has not yet done an apostolic trip there. The news comes as Pope Francis is set to canonize the first female saint from Argentina. Blessed Maria Antonia of St. Joseph traveled by foot to promote spirituality after the Jesuits were expelled from the South American country. Ahead of the Jubilee year 2025, the Knights of Columbus are supporting a restoration of the canopy over the high altar in St. Peter's Basilica. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more. For the Jubilee year of 2025, St. Peter's Basilica will have a fully restored main altar. Cardinal Mauro Gambetti, the archpriest of the Basilica, presented the intended works on Bernini's masterpiece to the public today. This is a restoration of significant symbolic value because the baldachin standing solemnly above the main altar marks the place of the tomb of the Apostle Peter, to whom the Basilica is dedicated. The baldachino fulfills its main function in focusing the gaze and also the gesture of the faithful on Peter's tomb on St. Peter's Confessio. It's like a large curtain that indicates a presence through Peter's faith. The presence is Jesus, who on the altar still comes to us today. The baldachin, as tall as a 10-story building, can be seen from any point in the basilica, and it represents the axis around which the entire architecture of the basilica revolves. This necessary intervention is being undertaken for the first time in a systematic and complete manner, 250 years after the significant 18th century restorations and 400 years after the start of the works for the Baldachin. The project will cost 768,000 US dollars and is being funded entirely by the Order of the Knights of Columbus in a spirit of service to the Church and the Pope, as the Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly explains. The Knights of Columbus is primarily a charitable organization. We do, we do so much local charity, but we're also in service to the church. So when the opportunity came up for us to, to collaborate on the restoration of the Baldacchino, uh, it was an easy decision to make, precisely because it's, it's Bernini's Baldacchino. It's the, it's the central, iconic part of the Vatican Basilica. So, so that's why we chose to do it, really to be in union with the Holy See, in union with the, with the Church. The provisional works and the works on the construction site will not hinder the celebration of papal ceremonies on the main altar. The projected time for the restoration is 10 months and the beginning is scheduled to start in the second week of February. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser and Matteo Chaffee, EWTN News Nightly. And we thank the Knights of Columbus for its support of EWTN News Nightly. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.